Before I jump right into the message, I just want to uh, talk about something that helpful for you to know. Here, here we are, not quite a month out. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, thank you to Ryan last week, serving you faithfully with God's Word. Uh, it was awesome. Amen. It is, uh, it's, good, it's good to be back with you. We were, Donna and I were worshiping with a church out in Seminole that is in search of a pastor and just appreciate the help when someone can, can step in. So, um, and it went well there as well, but it is always good to be back with our family uh, where God has placed us. Um, in August, so August 1st through August 31st, so for the month of August, um, I'm going to be on a sabbatical, and, and Donna and I are going to take time away to do just what Sabbath is, which is rest, um, get to know each other a little more, you know, <laughs> spend some time together, instead of just passing in the wind, which seems to be a common theme in our lives. Um, I've, been, I've been pastoring here for uh, 23 years, and um, uh, a time of rest uh, is both necessary and good. Uh, if you're like me, you might have a question in the back of your mind because I, I'm just telling you my own experience. My experience is that every time I've known of a pastor to go on a sabbatical, he ends up resigning and doing something else. So I, I would be a little leery of that if I'm, you know, somebody stood up and said, not the case. Okay, I'm not even thinking about like, answer, you know, is there a question about whether or not this is, no, I've, that, that's been answered for me long ago. And, and so... Uh, that's not the issue. That's not the concern. It's just Donna and I, amen. Uh, Donna and I need to have some time away to spend together, which would be good, just renewing our relationship and really to renew in the Lord, just to not to be thinking about sermons, not to be thinking about the church. I've been forbidden to uh, bring any books uh, to read on leadership in the church, uh, things of that sort. That's not what this is about. Uh, I will be uh, reading things devotionally and, and, and for my own soul, my own uh, the nurture of my soul in the Lord. And uh, so we're going to uh, spend some time uh, for about a week with some of our grandchildren that are out of state, uh, spend some time in Colorado at a uh, retreat cabin house, whatever you want to call it, on a big ranch of a bazillion-like acres out there, large space um, uh, that is designed for pastors that are taking a break, uh, and, and then spend uh, about 10 days uh, in various parts of Missouri, between visiting family, a pastor friend that we have back there, he and his wife, um, and uh, getting away to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, just outside of southwest Missouri, uh, a little spot we love. Uh, it's, it's like you're driving through the middle of Arkansas, and all of a sudden you show up in the middle of a European town somewhere in the mountains of, uh, uh, of Australia or something. It's just a strange little town, so it's, it's, it's cool. Uh, and one of the places I ran around in as a kid every now and again. So uh, we're going to do that as well. Uh, but we're looking forward to that, and we're looking forward to uh, just time and space for that. But it's also a time for us as a church, you're going to be well cared for, to realize the resources God has placed here. Um, it's not time to pull away. It's a time to recognize that this church isn't consist of a preacher. Uh, it consists of a whole community of people. And we happen to have preachers that are among us, okay? And, and so that's important for us to know. Uh, you'll be cared for by uh, some of the, the men here, as well as uh, on uh, one of the Sundays. Um, uh, Daryl Williamson will be preaching, uh, who's from a church in Tampa. He's been here before, and uh, 
the message that he's bringing, I've, I've heard him give a similar message, and I, I know you'll love it as well. By the way, you might want to note in your bulletin, it's been there for a week or two, but uh, at the bottom, under upcoming, you'll look down here, and, and Sunday, September 18th, we're going to have a 5 o'clock meeting with them at their church in Tampa. So it's going to be a joint service. Their worship team's going to be playing. Um, I'm going to be preaching. We're going to just worship together with them. It's just a, an opportunity to, to join and lock arms uh, in a way uh, that we wouldn't otherwise. And really want to encourage all of us to participate in that. We did, in scheduling it, stop and look at when are the Buccaneers playing. Let's pick a Sunday that they're out of town so that we're not crossing buck traffic between here and there, because they're on the other side of buck traffic, and we're on this side, and that would have been a nightmare. Uh, so the original date we had was uh, definitely, let's not do that. So we went with the 18th of September. And so I want to encourage everybody to be here and to be a part of that. Um, and for those that I, you know, I'm sure in, in Pete's prayer you caught wind of, but maybe you weren't aware of, but uh, Stephen's brother Drexel, um, who's been kind of uh, suffering through some things over the last year and a half for sure. I mean, longer, obviously, but, but more intensely in the last couple of years. Um, passed away Thursday morning, um, and Stephen was found out shortly thereafter uh, via phone call. Um, we uh, feel your sorrow and understand, you know, the depth of what that can be, but want God's comfort for you and are praying for you, brother. Um, Amen. And you'll be doing his funeral, I believe. Uh, is that set yet? Yeah, it's set Thursday. Thursday? Yeah, up in Ocala. Okay, very good. Uh, Jonah, chapter 4. Um, Nathaniel's uh, mom was here for the first Sunday in Jonah and now for the last Sunday in Jonah. So we're going to be finishing uh, our series uh, in Jonah. And I don't think that's what the schedule, her, her travel plans were scheduled around. It just happened that way. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, what, what's that? <laughs> so, uh, Jonah, the absurdity of God's compassion is the title of the series. And this particular message, the subtitle is A Mysterious Tree and God's Way of Salvation. A Mysterious Tree and God's Way of Salvation. You could say a mysterious tree is God's way of salvation as well. But we'll, we'll look at that as we go through. Um, and if you haven't been with us at all in this series, that's okay. I think I'll give you enough as we go along that you'll be able to, to track with me. Uh, but Jonah chapter 4, uh, and let's read beginning in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now... The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade, uh, might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well or do you do good, Tove, to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I, I do well. I, I am doing Tove. I am doing good to be angry. Angry enough to die. 
And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand? Heavenly Father, open our hearts, our eyes to see the glory of your compassion in this text and to understand Jonah's plight is really our plight. That as the people of God in this story, we are Jonah. And the sooner we reckon with that, the sooner we'll work through the issues that that comes with. In Jesus' name, amen. Bahrain Island in the Persian Gulf is approximately 300 square miles in land mass, 92% of which is desert. In the middle of that desert, with no other plant life evident for miles around it, on top of a large sand dune is a mysterious tree standing 10 meters high. That's a tall tree and rather big around. I believe we have it right there. On, on the slide so that you get a, a picture of it. And it has stood there for centuries. They, 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 they estimate at least four centuries, possibly longer. The, the site is parabolic in proportion. Legend says that it marks the site of the Garden of Eden. It provides the only shade in the area. The mystery in this case is the how of its existence. How does a tree grow like that in the middle of a place where there is no water. Our text includes a parabolic kind of mystery tree as well. Mysterious for different reasons. The, the name of the tree leaves it unidentifiable, so it is mysterious for that reason. Various ways of translating it have been attempted, but as Jerome noted centuries ago, it has characteristics of a couple of different trees, but no one tree fits the whole description that we are aware of. Jonah's tree is a mystery, though, not really because of its size nor its longevity in the midst of its difficult environment, not even really because we don't know what kind of tree it was, though that is a mystery uh, of it. But this tree in Jonah is a mystery because I believe it captures the mystery of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. In our text, Jonah is having a conflict of faith, one that often comes in the face of devastation. Devastation experienced is often a challenge to all believers. Jonah's name, it means dove. Innocent one would be another way to look at it. He, he stands before God trying to understand how Nineveh, who is anything but innocent, is not going to experience judgment, which he knows means that the people of God will experience judgment at the hand of those very same Assyrians, the Ninevites. Psalm 74, 19, though not using Jonah's name for the word dove, it uses another word for dove, uh, more of a turtle dove. It, it, the, the psalmist cries out, Do not hand over the life of your dove, referring to Israel, to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. In Psalm 74, Israel has very seemingly been taken into captivity already. Certainly have been devastated in significant ways. 
the wild beasts or the enemy forces that did it. Jonah is having a conflict of faith like the psalmist was in Psalm 74, 19, because God, for in, in Jonah's sake, it appears that God is going to turn over the life of his dove Israel to Nineveh. And he doesn't understand. Rather than punishing Jonah for this angst, this anger toward God, God helps Jonah process it through a living parable, which is this conflict of faith that he's having that's being addressed in this parable. Jonah's having it. And why is he having this conflict? Not because God is sparing Gentiles. I mean, indeed, God is going to spare some Gentiles, but that's not the conflict for Jonah. He didn't have the same conflict when the sailors got spared. In fact, he offered to be thrown overboard in order that they might be spared, and they were certainly Gentiles. The conflict is because life for Nineveh means death for Israel. It feels as if God is sacrificing His own people, whom He calls His Son. Remember when Moses went to Pharaoh, God told him, you know, tell him, let my people go. My Son refers to Israel as the Son. And then Hosea refers to Israel as my son, I call my son out of Egypt. And so, it feels to Jonah as if God is sacrificing his son for the sake of forgiving Nineveh. What kind of justice is it that God would sacrifice his son Israel to forgive wicked Ninevites? That's his question. On one level, the parable that he tells with this tree, this living parable, is simple. We can understand what it's about. We might wonder why Jonah doesn't get it. I mean, Jonah, really, this parable is not all that difficult. On another, it is a prophetic parable, and we probably have a harder time understanding it than Jonah did, um, because the symbolism is bizarre to us, though it was not to him. We're going to explore our text under three headings. Uh, The first is a simple parable. The second, a deeper meaning. And the third, an unending question. A simple parable, a deeper meaning, and an unending question. And let's begin under that first heading, a simple parable. Jonah went out of the city, we read in verse 5, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now Jonah in chapter 1 offered to have himself thrown into the sea in order that these heathen sailors, these pagan sailors, these idol-worshiping sailors, would be spared. Now, he sits outside the city, protecting himself by building a booth, hoping that the Ninevites will be destroyed. The contrast is, is pretty strong in those two ways. This is a booth of his own making designed to protect him from the desert heat, and is evidently ineffective. Otherwise, he would not have needed the provision of God, nor would he have been upset when the tree that God provided lasted only a day. He would have been fine sitting in his booth. But evidently, his booth was useless. We aren't given any details about the construction of the booth or the cause of its failure, but it is clear that it obviously had failed. And just as Nineveh had no way of protecting themselves from God's wrath, so Jonah has no way to protect himself from the sun's blazing heat. Of course, the sun's blazing heat throughout Scripture is often a 
symbol of God's judgment. So that's Jonah's self-made booth, but let's talk about God's triple provision. And we read that again in verses 6 through 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and, it, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be uh, a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on it, the head of Jonah so that he was faint. You probably recall at the end of chapter 1 in Jonah that when Jonah was thrown into the sea, God appointed, God provided, it's the same word, a fish, a great fish to swallow Jonah, to protect him from drowning, from death itself. That which God provided turned out to be a salvation. And now, in the belly of the Assyrian monster, Nineveh, God provides three things for Jonah's salvation. Three things for Jonah's rescue. First, he provides a plant, a kikayon. That's the word that is there. He provides a kikayon. Now, this kikayon provides shade for Jonah, protection from the blazing sun, which rescues him or saves him from his discomfort, from his raw, from his evil. The evil that he's referencing is the heat beating down on his head in a desert. That's the evil, his discomfort as it is said here. The evil Jonah wanted saving from is one that every human can relate to. Pain and suffering. We want rescue from pain and suffering. Our first question is, what kind of tree was it? <laughs> when we read stories like this, that's our question, because we're kind of scientifically minded. We're interested in knowing what kind of tree it is. We want its genus. We want the very specific species. We want None of that's given to us. Uh, th- this word is only used once here in our Bible. And nobody really knows any. I mean, it's only the description of this tree, uh, what it did, that we know it's even a plant. We wouldn't know it was a plant, but for the fact that it tells us that it grew up and it provided shade and then it withered. So we know it's a plant. We know that it provided shade, and we know that it miraculously grew up in one day. Beyond that, we know nothing else about this plant. Jonah rejoices in his salvation. You see that in verse 6c when it says, So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He wasn't just glad. He was exceedingly glad. He's rejoicing in his deliverance from the heat in that moment. And then the next two things that God provides are designed to save Jonah from something that he did not know that he needed saving from. Now, he knew he needed saving from the heat. We all know that we need saving from pain and discomfort and diseased saving from his anger over God's compassion of the wicked. Jonah needed saving from himself. <laughs> we, we could say that he was being saved from his sinful heart, and that's true, but it lacks enough specificity to be helpful, I think. How was his heart sinful? What was the angst going on in his heart? Well, it's because he didn't like God's version of compassionate justice as much as his own version of retributive justice. He wants God to punish the Ninevites, which in effect would be saving the Israelites. But instead, God forgives the Ninevites. 
For Jonah to be saved from himself, his comforts must be taken away. So God provides a worm, which eats the plant, causing it to wither. And then God provides a scorching east wind. So those are the second and third things that God provides, a worm and then a scorching east wind to finish the job. Jonah's protections are gone. His booth has failed, and the God-given provision for him has gone. And so now he's exposed to the heat. Isn't it true for us that the deepest work God does in us is not our own, in our times, it's not in our times of comfort, but in our times of difficulty? It's just the way it is. And God has to do a deep work in Jonah. And so God's got to remove the protection from Jonah so that he's experiencing the pain of that heat in that situation. You see, this is why Ninevites remain in the world. At one level, at least, this is why Ninevites remain in the world. This is why stock markets fall, retirement accounts diminish, that there are wars and rumors of wars, because our securities vanish in times like this. And when our securities vanish, it really tests what it is we are trusting in. It is the sun that caused the pain for Jonah, but the Lord provided the worm and the wind to remove Jonah's protection from that pain. And this sets Jonah up to have a conversation with the Lord. A conversation in which the Lord really addresses Jonah's anger. You see it at the end of verse 8, it begins, And he, Jonah, asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you, you, do, you do well, do you do tov, to be angry for the plant? And he, the, the kikayan, okay, that's the, the, the word there. And he said, Yes, I, I do well. I do tov to be angry. Angry enough to die. That's pretty angry. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The scene reminds me of one other scene. In Scripture. When, when, when was another time? When, when was there this other time that the Lord stands outside a city which is due judgment, speaking to His prophet about whether they should be destroyed or not? Do you recall one? Abraham standing outside of Sodom. Remember that conversation? Lord, would not the judge of all the earth do what is right if, if there are 50 righteous persons? And he, he keeps bringing it down. It, it kind of varies in the amounts that he lowers it by, but he, he lands at 10. If there are 10 righteous people, would you still destroy? So he, what's Abraham doing? He's interceding on behalf of the city. Now, here in Jonah, no one is referred to as righteous, the, and the count is much higher, 120,000. Now, 120,000 what? Scholars differ over whether it's a... 120,000, like that's the whole population of Nineveh at that time, or whether it's a group within it that are not held morally responsible for the wickedness of the nation. In that case, obviously children. 
who do not know their right hand from their left. That would be a description of children. Left and right's a bit of a strange concept. It, has, it takes a little longer. And it's referencing moral you know, culpability or ability to even distinguish and understand right and wrong in a true sense. That would be one thing. But others think it's the entire population. And others think, well, it's the children and it's any others who are just kind of living in ignorant bliss in Nineveh. They're not really actively a part of the violence and, and wickedness of that, that city. They're just trying to live their lives. They just happen to have been born there. Right? So, so what it exactly refers to, I mean, I thought, well, let's look up the population of Nineveh at the time. The problem with that is the population of Nineveh at the time is always listed as 120,000. But guess where that comes from? <laughs> right here. So it's circular reasoning. I mean, if this is where we get the population, we know that about a generation later it was swelling over 300,000. Now, did it grow that much or was it larger at the time and the 120,000 is a subset? We don't know. It's not necessarily important, but I, I tend to lean toward it being a subset of the whole population. The children, maybe some of the elderly, maybe, maybe some of those who, who just were not actively involved in any of the wickedness that, that for which they're being judged. Regardless, God's point is clear to Jonah. You had pity on the plant which you didn't even plant or nurture for mostly self-serving reasons because it's really about your protection. But you had pity on that plant. Yet you have a problem with me having pity on these people and animals whom I have made. In effect, God said, I made them, so I pity them. That's a good enough reason for God to have compassion or pity on anyone. He made them. That's sufficient. Yeah, but you don't know what they've done. He said, yeah, I know, but I made them. That's God's logic. Now, this is frankly easy enough to understand, even if it's hard to apply, right? I mean, I get it, even if I don't want to sometimes. But as with the rest of the story, there's a deeper level of meaning for Jonah, for Israel, and I believe for us. So that leads us to this next section, which is a deeper meaning. A deeper meaning. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge it. It might be foolish for me to even attempt to bring this on a Sunday morning. So some of you might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? That's okay. Just set back. It's like when you put kids in school. The first time they go through science, they learn some very basic level things, so it's going to be repeated again. In three years, they're going to get it again. And then in three years, it's like a three-year cycle, they're going to get it again. And by the time they get to high school, it's usually about the fourth time they've gotten that subject, and they begin to understand it at a much deeper level. So whatever level you're at, maybe you got saved last week, maybe you've been saved for 40 years, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've never heard this kind of stuff talked about, just sit back and Take it in in a way that it will allow you to gain the, the general concept of it. And don't worry about the particular details. In Jonah, the book, the threats to Jonah, the prophet, and to Israel, and by the way, us, are in the threatening form of or the, the, the storm and the blazing heat. So you had the storm in the first part of Jonah that threatens to destroy life, and you have the blazing heat that threatens to destroy life here. Now, those are not as much of an existential threat in our age of air conditioning and concrete and steel buildings, are they? Like, I don't sit there and think storms and heat. Those are really big problems. But imagine you lived in, let's just pick a place, Florida. <laughs> um, 
In the time when there were not concrete and steel buildings. In the time when there was not air conditioning. Let's go back to a time when most structures were probably made by you and your buddies. Out of whatever resources you could find around you. And it's, say, July when it's hot. And there are storms on the horizon. Now, the heat's bad, but you've got some things built that protect you from that heat. You've you've got ways to get... But then all of a sudden, a storm is coming. And that storm wipes out your shelter. And then the heat comes, and you have nothing to protect you. I mean, you can begin to see, in another day and another time, storms, massive storms, like hurricane-type storms, and and, 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 uh, heat would have been very even more threatening than they are today and they're threatening today imagine living in key west or puerto rico or places where you know they're you're right they're exposed to them that's the scenario that they lived in and this is not the first time in the book of jonah that we see storm and heat coexisting as threats in in in, in one story they were metaphors in isaiah for instance for something else uh, in isaiah 25 we read the following starting in verse 3 Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from uh, the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is still. So, God is like, God is like a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Note, shelter from the storm, shade from the heat. The heat that's being addressed in that, in those verses. And in our text in Jonah, I'm sorry, in in that text in Isaiah, verse 5, the storm and heat are metaphors for the ruthless Uh, like the Assyrians, that Jonah wants protection from. God is the one who is the shelter and the shade. He is, as we saw in chapter 2, the great fish. Christ is that great fish in whom we get buried in the sea of death and come out alive in our baptism. And He is the shade from which, uh, which the tree provided. But God is never quite the shelter that one expects. Any more than the great fish was the sea monster that Jonah expected. The tree withers in a day. Jonah's failed booth. Remember his booth that he built? It's there for a verse, and it's gone. I mean, he builds it. We don't really hear anything else about it, but it's clearly not doing any help for Jonah. Well, Jonah's failed booth is Israel's failed effort at providing itself shade. Israel, you may recall, if you know the story of the Old Testament, once decided, and uh, uh, Samuel, we read about it, they decided that they weren't satisfied with God's protection from the sun of the world's evils. They, they wanted an earthly king to protect them from the scorching heat of life's trouble. This was the booth of their own making. While this was clearly not God's way, It was the path God allowed to eventually show them the failure of their own way. They were going to fail. So God gives them a king. Remember Saul? And he what? He failed. 
So then he replaces Saul with David and makes a promise that through David, he would do all this amazing work and it would never end. But if you study the story of David's line, uh, if we're honest, he felt bigger than Saul. I mean, way bigger. His descendants who sat on the throne made Saul look like a saint at times. Amos, a contemporary of Jonah, prophet that ran around at the same time, speaking of the coming Messiah, he says this in, in Amos 9.11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Notice there that David's dynasty is called a booth, and its failure is called a booth that is fallen. A booth, a shelter, a tent. They're all things that you use to protect yourself, to shade you in the heat. David's booth was the protection which the people had sought in kingship when they rejected God as king. In, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, get to fast forward to the New Testament. In Acts 15, there's a... a, a the, 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 Apostolic church comes together. They've got to make decisions about the Gentiles. You may be familiar with that. But there they quote that same verse from Amos, saying that it is fulfilled by Christ who reigns at the right hand of God over all things through his church. So the fallen booth that has fallen down is raised up now. How? Through the resurrection of Christ and his exaltation to the right hand of God. Jonah, however, lives in a time when the booth was still fallen. Israel's efforts at providing themselves safety through a king failed. But what is God's answer to the shade, uh, from, to the heat, to shade us from the heat? What is his answer to shade us from that heat? Well, God's answer is a mysterious tree. A shade tree in the midst of a desert. Where else do we see shade trees mentioned in Scripture? Let this just, you know, kind of like Impressionist painting, let's just paint the background. You're not going to see the details of the flowers in the field. You just notice that there's a field of flowers behind the main picture. So just let this paint a picture as we walk through these verses. Because we do see shade trees elsewhere in Scripture. Remember Gideon, you know, the guy who was too scared of his own shadow, so to speak. He wouldn't go out and do God's work. God finally works through him, and he obeys God, and he, he, he delivers him from the enemy. And then everybody wants to make him king, and he keeps refusing to be king, right? Except for the fact that he named his son, my father is king, Abimelech. <laughs> a little, little twisted heart there going on, just a, a mixed sort of thing going on in his own heart. And then his sons grow up, and Abimelech, you know, my father is king. Abimelech kills, uh, by the way, Gideon has 70 kids. Not a king, of course. But he has 70 kids, and you think about the, the harems involved in that, but not a king. But he has 70 kids, and uh, Abimelech, one of them, kills 68 of his brothers. He has 70 sons, I should say, 68 of his brothers, and they grab for kingship over Israel. Number 69 escapes. Of course, Abimelech's number 70 in my counting. But num number 69 escapes and shows up at Abimelech's coronation gathering, where he's gathered all the men of Shechem at a great tree for his coronation. The brother who had escaped tells a parable to everybody gathered. He stands in a way where they can't get to him, and he tells this parable. 
And in this parable, each would-be king is pictured as a type of plant or tree. And all but one were uninterested in the job of king. They weren't interested in being king. But, of course, the one representing Abimelech is interested in being king, of course, because that's what he's trying to do. And so, this is how the parable ends. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, that's Abimelech, the thorn bush, not too glorious or glamorous, but... Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and listen. Take refuge in my shade. Take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Isaiah warned the people of God who sought shade in the military might of Egypt. He says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who, in verse 2, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, uh, uh, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. So uh, they're looking to the military might of Egypt to protect them, to be shade against the heat. The, that of other nations. Ezekiel pictures Judah under the Davidic, a Davidic king as a tree which has been planted and grew. But then it says this. The question is asked, will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it? Wait a minute. Wither when the east wind strikes it. Does that sound familiar? Didn't we read something about that in Jonah 4 that God sent, God appointed a scorching east wind? And the plant withered. Uh, here we have the Davidic kingdom being described in such a way that will not the east wind, when it strikes it, will it not wither away in the plot where it grew. And then God promises, this is all in Ezekiel 17, that was verse 10, but, but then we, we look down in verse 23, God promises to take a shoot, a, a branch from the withered tree and plant it, saying this, On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I am the Lord, that, that, that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. So God promises that even after the, the dynasty fails and everything is lost, that he's going to take just a, a stub, a, a, a branch, a, a, a little bit that's left. And, and it's going to grow to be a great tree. And then in Ezekiel 31, we read this. Consider Assyria. This was the enemy that Jonah was facing. Now, this is coming much later, after Assyria's destruction. But, but Ezekiel says, Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. The waters nourished it. Deep springs made it grow tall. Their streams flowed all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of abundant waters. All the birds of the sky nested in its bows. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its, what? Shade. You see in a pattern here? Kingdoms and kings provide shade by their earthly power and their earthly might. They protect us. We, we in our own nation. Why, why do we hear so often the military is celebrated? Why is it celebrated? Because it 
gives us shade, protection from the enemy nations around us. This is how humanity works. Hosea 14 speaks of a day when Israel would be restored from its oppression by Assyria. And in that day, it says, his young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. Kings and kingdoms are represented by trees in their shade. God's answer, however, to our need is not a purely human king, but a divine human king, Jesus Christ. God's answer is that he is king. Despite our desire to have some other kind of king. And a shoot from Jonah's withered tree will one day grow again and provide shade. You see, the the place of true shade is the kingdom of God under the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Messiah. Mark 4, we read this. You might be familiar with this parable. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. When, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of, of all garden plants with such big branches that all the birds can perch in its shade. A little humor in that, to be honest with you. I would have preferred a great cedar. Or maybe an oak. I like oak. Oaks are strong. Big old live oak, right? Lots of shade. One of those 100-year-old live oaks. Lots of shade. But, but no, it's what we get in the kingdom is a, a mustard plant. I mean, when this thing is full-grown, it towers over the cauliflower, baby. It's huge. I mean, like you go to the Lowe's and, and you're looking for herbs over in the garden center, right? You're, you're looking for herbs. And like, you, you go, you're not looking at trees, right? You're looking at little things that are, you know, maybe this tall and you're going to, yeah, but your biggest herb is going to be that mustard tree. It's, I mean, huge. It, you know, get a couple of feet tall. You see, that gets to the heart of Jonah's concern, to be honest with you. Jonah's upset because the tree withered. He was expecting something much more glorious. I mean, we read about Christ's kingdom coming, and and, and you read the Gospels, it was pretty glorious. But honestly, it lasted but a day in the sun. And he was crucified. And what we get instead is a bunch of local churches. Some really neat mustard trees. I gave you some shade. But it's God's way where He uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. In fact, His power is made perfect in weakness. But we still want earthly kings, so we even try to turn our churches into a place where we have kings. We create little kingdoms. The phenomena of mega churches, to be honest with you, is just really the outworking of our own way of trying to create kingdoms and make kings out of shepherds. God gives us shepherds. He didn't want us to have kings. <laughs> but shepherds aren't quite as glorious as kings, let's be honest. 
God promises a future king who will protect Israel, who will be shade in the heat. Someone who will rise up miraculously as that Kikayan did. Isaiah describes it as, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, the branch will bear fruit. Isaiah 11.1 1. The Messiah rules with true justice. Justice that forgave his enemies. Justice that died outside the city of Jerusalem to save those within. Justice that often seems short-lived in the already not yet world. Like that mysterious shade tree in the desert whose withering Jonah was complaining about, so too Christ, our shade-providing king, dies after but a seeming day in the sunshine. The kingdom came. It was buried after that as a seed. And now it grows providing a mustard bush. Not the earthly kingdom of our desires. But like Jonah, we want something different. Like Israel, we sadly keep pursuing it. Making kings in our own way. Which leads us to our third heading and our conclusion. Verse 11. The title of this section is an unending question. Jonah said, or the Lord says to Jonah, And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity your enemies? <laughs> Jonah offers no answer to this question. We're left with the question of whether God should show pity on the wicked, even the wicked who harm us. We are left to consider that despite the fallenness of this world, God is concerned for every human and every animal and truly everything that he has made. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned that the story of Nineveh and Jonah is, is read on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Um, after the reading of the book of Jonah in that service, they supply a response to this question, Should I not pity? And they grab that response from Micah 7, 18 through 20, where it says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. It's the right answer to the question, but it's also a strange answer for Israel to cite, for the Jews to recite. Because in reading them, in response to God's question about Nineveh and having pity on them, Jonah, uh, or, or the Jews, uh, are acknowledging that, that they, that Jonah, and that the Ninevites are all in the same basic relationship to Yahweh. which is one rooted in God's compassion. Are we okay with God's withered tree? Are we okay with the king, the shade tree that God has given, which has a short-lived life of glory followed by an age of persecution and suffering? Because that's what we have in the church. Are we okay that God's power is made perfect in weakness? Are we okay that with, with the foolishness of the cross? Are we okay that the Lion of Judah is that lion by becoming a lamb slain? Are we okay that suffering occurs because God is patient, wanting all to come to repentance? Are we okay that God has pity on Ninevites? You see, 
God's concern for His remnant people does not preclude His concern and action on behalf of other peoples. And that's bewildering to us sometimes. We thought we had some sort of special status. God's way of salvation is one of a cross, where those who are saved by the cross take up a cross of their own in order to bring that salvation to others. But crosses aren't fun to bear. Knowing that Nineveh's repentance was short-lived, which we know, and which the original audience knew, we, we must take the message of Jonah seriously. God's question is whether we are good with the risk He takes in offering forgiveness to people who may misuse it. Are we okay that God thinks the rebellious are worth the risk, uh, the risk danger to gain the possibility of forgiveness in order that some might become friends of God? Well over a decade ago, I had someone sitting in my office explaining why they were leaving the church. One of their key reasons that they offered was, amongst a few, was that someone we had welcomed in, welcomed in because they were trying to overcome a drug addiction, and they did for a year, they had a relapse. And, of course, that wreaked havoc on our life as a church. And they informed me that a wise pastor would not have taken such a risk. Truth is, we don't like such a risk-taking pastor. We don't even like such a risk-taking God. I get it. We want it to work out clean every time. One of the difficulties of our faith is reckoning with the persistence of wickedness in the world. At its core, that's Jonah's difficulty with God. As James Bruckner puts it in his commentary, God's response to Jonah means that the world will be a place where the potential for great evil will remain precisely because God hopes for the salvation of the wicked. This is a complex faith that challenges even the true prophet of God and it continues to challenge believers to trust God more completely for the future. We're all good with God having compassion on us. We're even good with God having compassion on wicked people who do us no harm. We love those testimonies. But what about God having compassion on our enemies? Those who do us harm. Or, to put it another way, are we okay with God having compassion on others at a cost to ourselves? That's the question that Jonah leaves us with. And put that way, we might be a little more likely to run in the other direction at God's beck and call than we are to run to Nineveh. Because running to Nineveh is running right into the belly of the monster. On a practical level, let me ask it this way, because this is how I have to ask it to myself. Who is it that has wronged you and you expected God to give them their comeuppance. How did you do when they got compassion instead? Let's pray. Father, as we approach this table this morning, we consider that your salvation has come to us because Jesus, the innocent one, the dove, 
He suffered because you were willing to sacrifice your son for the sake of the wicked. Jonah struggled with that. And when we're talking about our salvation, we don't struggle, but that very way of doing things is still contrary to our own way of thinking. This morning we partaking of the Lord's table where God's Son took bread the night that He was going to be betrayed and He broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And then after supper, He took the cup and He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. So often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do it in remembrance of Christ. If you're a believer today, you're welcome to partake with us at this table. Uh, If you're not a believer, we just ask that you would uh, uh, pass on this meal. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And when we do, after we pray, we're going to come down these center aisles, the two center aisles here. Take the elements and then feel return through the outside aisles to your seat. That would be great. Hold on to the elements uh, until we've all gotten the elements and then we'll partake together afterward. Father, for this bread and for this cup, representing the body and blood of our Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And we know that it is your provision. It is your Kikayon tree that gives us the protection we need and saves us from the very things we didn't even know we need saving from. Our very selves, our, the sin that distorts our thinking, our life, our understanding. We ask that you would conform us to the image of your Son. Amen. Amen.